Welcome to URI's podcast series, a podcast proposed by the Armament Industry European Research Group. After a short break, I have the pleasure to welcome you to this new episode of URI's podcast series, a new format to encourage fresh strategic thinking in the field of European defense industrial policies. In this episode, we will continue discussing the post-Ukraine defense budget increases and their impact on the European defense industry. After Netherlands, the UK, Sweden, Lithuania, Poland, Spain, Belgium and Italy, we will today discuss the case of Germany. To discuss this topic, we have the pleasure to welcome Dr. Christian Melling, Deputy Director of the DGAP in Berlin, Head of the Center for Security and Defense and Irish Scientific Advisor. Welcome to this podcast, Christian, and thank you for accepting the invitation. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Gaspar. It's great to be here and to have the opportunity to hopefully add some context or information to the discussion about German defense budgets. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Before leaving you the floor, a few words to introduce today's topic. With Chancellor Scholz's famous speech in front of the Bundestag in February 2020, three days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Germany was one of the first countries in Europe to announce massive increases in defense spending with the creation of a 100 billion euro special fund to modernize its armed forces. Initially well received, this fund proved to be insufficient to fill all the Bundeswehr capability shortfalls and its implementation is still some way off. A year after it was approved, where do we stand with the special fund and more broadly with the so-called Zeitenwender? How has the war in Ukraine changed Germany's capability priorities and its approach to capability planning? And how much emphasis does Germany intend to give to European cooperation in this field? These are questions that we will try to answer in this episode. And to begin, I would like to ask you a very broad question. What is the impact of the Ukrainian war on the German defense budget? How do you analyze the announced increases in defense spendings? And do you consider them sufficient? Yeah, thanks, Gaspar. Um, I mean, it's it's a little bit glass empty, uh, glass half empty, half full. That's that's the question, right? Because um, nobody would have expected in in normal times um, that you could make a pledge for one hundred billion um, on on your defense on top of your normal defense spending. Um, so that's in, in, in no country, basically. Um, you could also argue, ah, but that's that's just basically a sign of how badly uh, underfinanced the German armed forces have been. That's true. We have calculated that since the end of Cold War, just kind of year by year, it was 90, 90 billion. So you could say this is a this is a payoff if you do basically interest rates and the interest rate of interest rates, and you end up somewhere between three hundred fifty and and six hundred billion. You can so that's the money that the Germany has saved over time. So now you could argue it's payback time. Peace dividend is over. Um, on the on the one hundred billion, what has to be pretty clear: this money has never been um, thought either among experts uh, as as solving all the problems on uh, on the underfinancing of the German defense um, uh, system. It was thought um, in in the time of the election, even um, there was a preparation of saying, so if we need to spend money, where would the where would we need to spend it on? And what do we need? What would we need to invest to fill the gaps between what we have offered NATO in 2014 and what we have not delivered so far? 
So you end up with a list of um, 25 projects at that time, uh, which are either European cooperation projects or NATO shortfalls. And if you sum them up, you arrive at 100 billion, roughly, on the cost basis of 2021. So there you can see there's another problem, of course, because of inflation, et cetera, et cetera, that didn't fit. Um, so it was it was pretty clear at the beginning that this wouldn't uh, that this wouldn't work. Also, last point on on the 100 billion, um, it is also not um, it doesn't cover uh, the personnel cost for the capability and the day-to-day -day operation of the capability. It's only procurement money. The good thing about it is it's not linked to the annual budget. So that the problem that we had with the underfinancing of the German armed forces was it's neither sufficient in terms of the volume of the money, nor is it sufficient in terms of the time horizon in which allows and enables planning. The, the legal obligation for our planners in the armed forces is if you don't have sufficient budget, you're not allowed to plan or to start a project, basically. It's pretty clear that the German forces will still need much more money. And there comes the political dimension. The politicians, the parliament, um, the general accounting office are rather critical of spending more money because they have thought that uh, the German armed forces have been pretty good in spending money for nothing um, in terms of output. Um, that's a little bit over exaggerated um, in the in the perception, but that's kind of that's how it feels. Um, so you're a little bit in a in a dilemma here. Um, plus, what comes also on top? Sorry for being very long in the first answer. Is it's not on the one hundred billion. Olaf Scholz also said he he intends to spend or he will spend from now on. That's the quote Olaf from from his speech. More than two percent of the GDP on defense, and we are also not there where for a long time we possibly will not be there. Not this year, not next year, possibly in 2025. Um, so there is also another gap opening up. Where do you get the money from to spend the 2% actually? Thank you very much, um, Christian, for um, these explanations and uh, for uh, making uh, all this uh, more clear because I'm not sure that everybody has in mind the, the, the real goal of this special fund and there are some kind of uh, misunderstandings, I think. Um, now I would like to talk about um, capability priorities. What would you say are the major capability priorities of Germany? Has Germany identified new capability priorities after the war in Ukraine? Have they changed? And um, would you say that priority is given um, to long-term planning or more to the need of filling capability gaps quickly? Yeah, I mean, one has to bear in mind that German capability, the German capability profile is 90-95% driven by NATO. So whatever, whenever NATO changes things, that has an implication for Germany. So what has been decided in Madrid, the new force model, etc., etc., these are all things that somewhat will impact on the German capability profile. Doesn't mean it impacts directly on the equipment because it just takes time. You know, this is there's short-term political decisions. But long-term capability decisions, um, which have just a path dependency, I think that's the first thing that you were saying. There are some some discussions on some new capabilities, or how do you achieve the capability? Do you have to switch around um, from tracked um, systems to wheeled systems? So these are very, one would say, niche discussions that we have. Um, however, I think that that's very important that that you highlight that is the what has changed. Um, recently is the planning perspective 
from a long-term strategic view of filling gaps um, and also kind of, you know, have modernization, et cetera, et cetera, to a very short-term priority on the time. And by that, indirectly accepting that costs possibly go up and that quality possibly goes down. Because this is this typical triangle that you have, whatever you buy, you can decide on on the cost of something, on the timeline or something, and on the quality. And what the, the new minister of defense um, has done some weeks ago is he has taken executive decision and, uh, and, and has basically made this a directive for the whole armed forces is that time is of essence. So we will fill capability gaps as soon as possible. Um, whether that is a clever decision on the military side difficult to say. I think it has serious implications for the defense industrial base as well with regard to the quality and, you know, um, with regard to innovation, et cetera, et cetera. But my interpretation is that it's mainly politically driven because the new minister came into office after we had a, I would argue, a peacetime defense minister who wasn't capable of grasping the unique situation and the challenges that the war and the the capability shortfalls of the German armed forces has brought to her. So she was replaced. And now time is of essence for the minister because he has to present results um, in terms of quantities, I would say. So in terms of, of tanks, of planes that you can touch by the end of this government. Uh, it's a political driver which also has military implications because if he can't achieve this, he will not get a second chance and not second chance only in terms of becoming the next defense minister for the next government possibly if he wants to but also in terms of getting the money in the next government um because parliament says as i said before i mean yeah it's nice that you're trying but if we have the impression that you will fail we are not going to throw additional money into the black hole of the german armed forces it's better to not spend the money and that's that's so he is under a tremendous time pressure. We have lost one year of decision making towards the support of Ukraine and always towards decisions essential for the renovation of the German armed forces, which are effectively ten years of time that we have lost by by this because it was so crucial and the time compression was there and there was a non-decisions so, so many non-decisions that have been taken. So that explains why we are currently focusing on that. So if I would. Just as a glimpse of hope for those who are uh, like me, fetishists on 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 defense procurement and innovation, all these things, I think we will see beginning of the next government, so 2025, 2026, we will see another reform that tries to rebalance this absolute focus on 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 time. Plus, there are still projects that are kind of you know that, that are running on a different track that is the future combat air system uh, as a real innovation process and project that's also true for mgcs uh, and some other projects where we still we are either on the cooperation side because we have signed in or we are on the innovation side that we have signed in and also um, a lot of filling the gaps initially now with us material which is a no-brainer because you, it's not available anywhere else. But that is heavy lift helicopters. We don't produce them in Europe, and that's the um, the nuclear carrier. That's the F thirty five, which we are buying because we are 
we have we have been lazy over over 20 years and have missed any opportunity to build a new European carrier for US nuclear weapons. Um, so we have to go for the F-35. It's it's very interesting what you say because um, as you say it's it's driven by internal uh, political issues, but also I think by external uh, issues. Uh, all the countries, European countries, looking at Germany, especially the Eastern European countries, looking at Germany and how um, it uh, uh, makes its armed forces evolve. So uh, there is kind of an external pressure, also maybe. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, I would say. If I remember well, uh, the the current defense minister also said something like, uh, "From now on, priority will be given to market available solutions." Mm -hmm. So, um, how much emphasis would you say is given to the development of new cooperative projects at the European level compared to um, off-the-shelf procurement? I mean, if 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 we take the minister by his word, um, then we will see cooperation opportunities at least in the development of new kits to be shrinking that's that's another kind of dilemma or kind of incoherence because you have the you know german dna yeah we want to cooperate blah blah blah, blah. but so yeah yeah we love franco german yeah, all these things that we have um at the same time the decision indirectly limits cooperation opportunities because we know that cooperation always is more is more costly um, and it takes at least it takes more time so this is a kind of thing where I would say we will see cooperation opportunities being less available unless and that's another thing you basically try to suck the German industrial sector into it and say so basically let's try to make them the provider of some equipment which provide the material basis for more cooperation of soldiers in the field that's another thing that you could do so in, interoperability uh, but not exactly not from the from the beginning on. So at least for 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 a certain time, I, I guess there will be less of an emphasis on that. Doesn't mean that we will actively drop out out of I don't know Pasco projects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But also they are not so relevant for the real capability gaps that we currently have. So they they are kind of they're part of very small modules in the overall patchwork that that we are um, generating. But the um, if, as I said, if you take the minister, minister by his word, then you will see shrinking um, cooperation opportunities. I don't think it is the last word on it because what they now realize, okay, that doesn't work. Um, and there is this, I would say, ungrounded hope for European cooperation saves us money. But because it's 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 just in their minds, you will see that there will there will be a kind of a shift in this position, um, making compromises on the market availability, blah 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 thingies. Um, but for the moment, it's something where, for the for the reason, because, the, I mean, if you take a look into the German defense sector, you effectively can say it had a breakdown, and not only because of the war, but long before. But we just discovered the breakdown um, due to the war. Um, that was the only the only reason why people on the highest echelons, including the, the chancellor, took a look into the machine room and, fact, and figured out, oh, shit, there's no machine in this room. Uh, so how do we do this? How do how do we basically implement what I have said weeks ago? So there are, for, for kind of good political reasons, you now have people who are interested in making the machine room going again. That's, that's a good thing in political terms, right? Because nobody, on, on the other side, nobody has been interested for 20 years in, in what is happening in the German defense machine room. Actually, what's, what's going on is very positive, I think. Uh, it takes time and, and people are, I may be a bit impatient to see what's happening, but uh, it's going the, in the right direction. Uh, 
I would say. Um, one question we like to ask in this podcast series uh, on defense budget is about um, coordination, consultation with uh, with neighboring countries. Would you say that Germany has consulted other countries or coordinated with other countries in planning this new spendings and this new um, procurement? I think it's a, it's a good tradition uh, uh, among European countries to not consult on on defense spending or, or on defense cuts, right? So you always get it from the newspapers, um, and that's not only true for and uh, that's not only true for uh, defense uh, spending. That's also true for one or the other cooperative project. Out of when you're sitting in Paris, you read uh, possibly out of the newspapers that you uh, uh, that there will be a new uh, ground-based air defense. Uh, project so yeah that's something which i would i would say there is a learning curve and improving professionalism is an is a daily objective um, of the german government and especially of the chancellor's office in putting putting uh, also the words and deeds together and say yeah we want a more cooperation on the other hand you see that this you know how do you basically fill in the cooperation is something that needs more than than the will of the highest political leadership it also needs the good advice by those in the military machine room by the bureaucracy basically can say what is doable and what's not doable yeah maybe a question on the on, on the the way germany does its uh, procurement um, we hear a lot that uh, uh, the BINBV doesn't work really well uh, there has been this reform this year on procurement Mm. Um, what would you say are Germany's preferred bodies when uh, looking at procurement? Is Germany more buying um, through OCAR or through NSBA or does it favor uh, multilateral frameworks? Um, could you just give us some uh, insights on this? Yeah, well, that's one of the most complex topics that, that you could have. So on the political level, I would say it's always um, a, okay, we try to have a good mix Uh, and it's not it's not driven by institutions, so you don't have to buy through OCA. I mean, some some stuff we also buy through NATO, right? And there are some some really wild constructions on procurement agencies. If you take a look into the Eurofighter construction, these are all things. I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm not sure whether one really would like to know how this all came into place. Um, but on the on the very kind of you know the. Um, National Procurement Agency, the BNBV, which has, is a horrible name, uh, which I can't even, I think, um, outline what, what the abbreviation means exactly. The, the thing is, you had a development over the last 20, 30 years that political leadership was not interested in what is happening in the bureaucracy. So what does bureaucracy do in such a situation? It creates work on its own. And they are very happy with it. So you can design your own procedures. And if you're new in a job, the best thing you can do to have a legacy is generate a new procedure, et cetera, et cetera. And there's nobody in the political leadership who says, look, guys, stop. This is this is not going to happen. So you basically left the bureaucracy alone. And what they have created is a jungle out of procedures, regulations, et cetera, et cetera, that only apply to the German armed forces. So the mechanics is political leadership. If the political leadership says, My priority is, as has happened now, time and not a the most proper, the 100% legal basis for the contract. We are willing to accept risks in the procurement. Then you have a clear advice to the legal advisors of the procurement agency to not make the contract 100% safe, but to say, okay, there are 
as normal if you have a development project, there are risks in it. And you can't basically prevent all the risks or basically write them off. But that is what has happened over over years and, and decades. Um, so now that we have political leadership, you can expect that the agency changes to a certain extent if you can implement the change. So you basically have to force bureaucracy to do it. Uh, and that is that is something where we hope that the new minister can do the trick, because just writing a, a, a new regulation doesn't doesn't do the trick, right? That's something where bureaucracies tend to say, yeah, it's a new regulation, because uh, tomorrow there will be also a new regulation. So there is every day a new regulation. So making political will happen is the biggest challenge for the moment. Then we can turn to the agency and say, so where are the inefficiencies in the agency? There are inefficiencies. The agency knows about this, but. Um, the, you can easier change towards more efficiency if you have a political letter that says, and here, that's what you basically have to do. But this will take time, right? This is not going to happen this year and next year. This is um, The only thing that can happen now is that the political leadership creates a basis for action in the new government that cannot be basically swept away easily again. Um, and we have experience on that as well, you know. It, so it depends actually on the next minister, how he or she wants to do it, and if he wants to pick up the threat or she uh, that the current minister has done. Then we can have a success, uh, successful reform of the procurement system. Otherwise, it's just, uh, you know, another blow in the wind. I, I would like to ask you a last question. A lot of things are happen happening at um, the EU level, and I would like to know how does Germany stand regarding um, all these joint acquisition tools which are currently uh, being um, discussed. Uh, I'm thinking about Adirpa, uh, maybe tomorrow Edip or mm. uh, ASAP, for example. And do you think personally that these tools are going in the right direction? So on the government perspective, um, first, there is a a traditional imbalance, I would say. Um, I said that defense planning in Germany has been driven since decades by a mixture of NATO obligations and national abilities for the defense um, industry and political interests. So that's that has been the mix. The European Union didn't play a significant role in that, and especially also not in the Ministry of Defense as the main driver of these things. So there is... It's something that is, you could either it's a nice to have or it's a um, an obligation that you have to that you have to meet, but it's not fully embraced, right? So there's, even if you take a look into the staff that is dedicated towards NATO business and towards EU business, you see the imbalance. The Foreign Office may be more forward leaning towards EU European engagement because that's kind of you know that has been that has been the rhetoric since since decades. But I think we will see this rhetoric continued also because the the output, uh, the balance sheet of European cooperation or of cooperation within the EU framework more precisely is not that that good, right? It's not nothing where you can see there's a compelling case for doing more on, on, on that. And to a certain extent, that's also that's a little bit of failure of, of the uh, of other uh, nations, of other capitals, not basically uh, walking the talk. But also of the Brussels institutions, who are always trying to to make up their business case and what they can provide, and at the end of the day, they can't provide. You know, if you take the last case on the on the ammunition procurement, it is a mix of of really something where I can basically, if I would still have hairs, I would just lose them over this. 
Um, so th I think that also drives my my personal uh, my personal assessment of of the instruments. In best case, they are part; they can become an established and well known and positive part of generating capabilities more effectively. You know, filling some gaps that are there, being being just useful. In the worst case, it's a waste of money. But then you would say, okay, with regard to all the money that we are spending nationally and wasting it nationally, it's not that much. So it's, it can be acceptable. So I think it's it's it would be good to have an honest assessment of the delivery of the EU institutional offers of for cooperation and what governments or nations have done on their own without the European Union. Um, that's always complicated. Um, with regard to data, but it's especially complicated uh, by politics because nobody wants to get the bill for all the mistakes that have been made over the last years. But I would say that the the missing part, maybe the European Union doesn't doesn't look that bad with regards to the performance compared to other actors, you know, like like nations. But that's something that that's a discussion that I guess we would need to have and also to to basically break down the myth that the defense sector is like any other sector uh, in the European Union. It's it's not trading bananas. It's trading political instruments which have significant political will behind it. Um, and that was, I guess, uh, that was the wrong start of the story um, of um, yeah, it's just an economic problem that we can solve with market uh, with market based tools. I think that's something where we'd have to start. Um, a new story, a new chapter on what the role of the European Union can be in in helping us, the nations with capabilities. Yes, definitely. And uh, we will try also in the, the next episode of this podcast to to help better understanding uh, all what is going on, because as you say, the not trading bananas and uh, all these uh, tools and topics are extremely um, um, specific and difficult to understand. So we'll try to contribute to better uh, make them understandable. Um, unfortunately, it's already the end of this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christian, for um, uh, being uh, on board uh, today with us, giving us uh, your time. It was a real pleasure to, to welcome you. Thanks for having me and uh, have a good weekend. Thank you very much. <laughs>